Hello and welcome to Baby Lab, a podcast from Babyology and Western Sydney University. I'm Jamila Rizvi, and for our final episode of season one, we're doing something a little different. So far, we've discussed baby talk, bilingualism, how kids learn to read, and so much more. But kids are endlessly fascinating. And through the series, you guys have been in touch with some really great questions. So in this episode, we're going to go back to the experts to bring you the answers. A quick note before we get started. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, then I'd recommend hitting pause now and scrolling right back to the beginning of the series. For the rest of you, stay tuned. After the break, we get some answers. Welcome back to our special Q&A episode of Baby Lab. Throughout the season, we've been asking you to send us your questions, big or small. And wow, first of all, thank you. It has been amazing to see so many great emails filling up our inbox. Our producer, Caitlin, gathered up all your questions and sat down with the experts at the Marks Institute for Brain Behaviour and Development at Western Sydney University. Here is what they said. Question number one. Hello. My wife and I had our first child last year and she's now six months old. I've always loved the idea of giving my child the gift of being bilingual, but the only problem is both my wife and I only speak English. What can we do to teach our daughter a second language? We'd really like for her to learn Mandarin, but we don't have any friends or family who speak it. Thanks very much. Well, I have to say that you are facing an uphill struggle if you want to teach your child an additional language and you don't speak that language yourself. In order to acquire a language successfully, you need people to speak to. So they need to get that input from somewhere. The question is where. The best sort of language learning occurs when the people you're interacting with are native speakers. And it's even better when you're interacting with many native speakers, okay? So you're going to be much more successful if there are many speakers of that language, Um, you know, so you can go to a play group or or something like that. Ideally, in your child's age range, because children learn from each other a hell of a lot more than they learn from us once they develop a certain level of autonomy. Um, And if possible, maybe a trip overseas or sort of several trips as your child grows up can be very, can, can give a very big injection. Um, so that, that fluency really comes on when you're in an immersion situation like that, interacting with a lot of native speakers. Um, but you know, I, I keep my fingers crossed for you because it, it's easy to say, but it's very hard to execute. I'm just wondering um, what the long-term effects are of um, the daily separation anxiety on kids when you're dropping them off at childcare. Um, yeah, just if there's been any research done into the, the tears with drop-offs and the psychology of these kids um, when they get older. There are studies looking at uh, early attachment between parent and child and the stress hormones that children show in this separation anxiety. 
And so what they can measure is the cortisol, which is the stress hormone in your saliva. And they can measure that when children are at home and playing to get a baseline measure. Then they can also measure that as soon as you've done a daycare drop-off and look at how much of the stress hormones occur. And what they find is that uh, children with a more secure relationship or children whose mothers spend more time helping them adapt to the daycare setting in those initial stages uh, don't have the same peaks in their cortisol. So, yes, they'll cry and scream and have tantrums or tears or whatever it is, uh, but their stress hormones won't increase as much. So if you have a little routine to say goodbye to them, have a chat to the educator, you know, show the child that you like the educator and that you're happy and comfortable around them and then the child will feel that and they'll probably mimic that as well. But, you know, our children are, I think, just built to make us a bit more resilient. They bring us so much joy and happiness in many of the things that they do and then they have their little moments where they remind you that they're only little humans and it's your role to make them feel secure and confident in the environment around them. And if you can do that at a daycare drop-off, then they'll learn that it's a safe place and uh, at the end of the day, you'll come back and pick them up. I have two kids and I spend quite a lot of time with my friends and their kids and we've noticed that uh, the girls seem to always pick up language and start talking um, earlier than the boys do. Um, Is that true? If so, why do baby girls learn to talk faster than baby boys? There are some gender differences in language development girls are generally ahead of boys in emerging language skills. So in terms of brain development, the development of white matter structures in the brain of boys and girls is different. There are also social explanations for the differences in language development between boys and girls. And studies have actually shown that parents produce more animated sound effects when playing with boys and they ask the girls more questions and have more conversations. Parents are more likely to engage in pretend play with girls. And we know that there's a positive relationship between pretend play and language skills. We also know that the kinds of toys that we buy for boys and girls, these kind of gendered toys, the sort of action toys for boys and more doll-like games for girls. So something about the way we tend to interact with girls and boys that can make a difference. And studies support this link. Hi, um, my son has a a slight lisp at uh, two, and I was just wondering if that is uh, part of normal speech progression while he's learning, or if uh, if there's a problem with the clarity of speech, but not the actual words themselves, um, is it something that I need to do something about? So with younger children, if they're under three, a lot of the time strangers can't necessarily understand everything that they're saying, even though as a parent you could fill out a vocabulary checklist and you could say, yep, I know that my kid says this many words. And that's not uncommon. So as they're learning to speak, you know, the first words that they're saying aren't necessarily very intelligible. But, you know, parents, grandparents, daycare educators, they'll be able to say, yep, he's asking for the banana. 
one thing is um, that's really important if your child isn't articulating their words very clearly is for you to help model that for them. If, you know, they're saying nana or bana instead of banana, then you say, oh, do you want the banana? You know, the banana tastes good, doesn't it? And they'll say bana. And you'll say, yeah, you're saying banana. And we know that that helps. If you ever feel that your child, you know, isn't saying enough or you have a concern that, then it's something that you really need to take and get a health assessment. I'm just going to jump in quickly here. I hope you're enjoying this special Q&A episode of Baby Lab. We've got more answers to your questions right after this short break. Welcome back to Baby Lab, our final episode for this season. Now, I've got a question of my own. I would really like to know if my little boy's already three, three and a half, and he hasn't learned another language, have I missed the boat? If it's all about that first year or two, and that's when our baby's brains are soaking this stuff up and being really malleable, am I already too late? Let me answer that question by going to the other extreme. So I recently published a study where we're trying to keep the brains of older adults healthy. These older adults only spoke one language and we trained them to learn a language for six months and we measure their brain cognitive abilities before we train them and after we train them. And we see improvement in individuals over the age of 65 on general non-language related cognitive tasks following six months of, in this case, computer-based language training. So that suggests to me that you will unquestionably see some brain-related changes and cognitive improvements in children that are acquiring a language as young as three. In Australia, there are thousands and thousands of children with parents from non-English speaking backgrounds that have what we call a heritage language, their their family language or languages. And it's not at all uncommon for such children to use that language exclusively within the home. So when they're babies and toddlers, and then to learn English when they first attend preschool or daycare or maybe even kindergarten. And they learn English very, very well and become fluent speakers. And it actually very quickly becomes their dominant language. So even the most uh, critical uh, academic that says earlier is better would not even bat an eye at acquiring a language at three years of age. My wife and I are avid readers. Does that mean our children will be? Is it inherited? There are links between the home literacy environment, for example, how much the family reads or how many books there are in the home, and children's reading ability. So parents who are good readers are more likely to have children that are good readers. We know also that there is familial risk of dyslexia, so that children who have a parent with dyslexia are at a greater risk of developing dyslexia themselves. So children's reading ability can be explained by the parent's genes. 
But there's also an interaction between genes and environment. So parents who are poor readers are less likely to buy books for their children or to have books in the home. So getting back to the question, if you and your partner are avid readers, there's a very good chance that your child would be too. Children model what's, what they see and if they see that mum and dad are reading, then they're more likely to engage with this activity as well. Uh, my son is two years old. He's exposed to Maori, French, but mostly English. He speaks many words, but is yet to form any sentence. Uh, our pediatrician has referred him for speech pathology. I mentioned the three languages, but he insisted it was irrelevant. Uh, from what I have read, bi or multilingual toddlers uh, structure sentences later, but it's beneficial overall. I would love your opinion as I'm uh, quite hurt by our pediatrician's words. As a parent, it can be very upsetting to hear a, what could be a possibly negative assessment of your child's speech and language abilities. From the information provided in the question, I don't see any reason to be alarmed at this stage. Having said that, though, I haven't seen this child in person, so the fact that your pediatrician is advising you or maybe referring you to speech pathology services suggests to me that maybe they're seeing something that isn't captured in the description um, that has been provided here. Um, seeing a speech pathologist and getting some speech therapy is absolutely not going to hurt your child in any way. It's just a matter of playing some word games, doing some tests that are in the form of little imitation games. The child doesn't even realize that they're working or that they're being assessed. Even if the child has no impairment whatsoever, it's not, not going to hurt them in any way. It's worth noting that at that around about two-year mark, a lot of children experience a spurt, a very rapid vocabulary increase, and a, a, they, they start to speak a lot more clearly between the ages of two and three. So I wouldn't be too concerned at this stage. It is quite early. But at the same time, I don't think that we should entertain the third option of not doing anything just sweeping it under the rug and hoping for the best, um, I'd be encouraging you to be very proactive. And you know, we want to put your child in the best possible situation. Now, whether they're speaking one, whether they're exposed to one language or multiple languages, that isn't going to cause any delay. Okay, so even if they have some sort of speech problem, they're going to have that speech problem. Um, regardless of whether they're speaking one or multiple languages. The one piece of advice that I would strongly put to you is to insist that if you are going to see a speech pathologist, to ask your doctor to refer you to someone who is not going to give you this outdated and debunked advice that you should, quote, simplify your child's language environment at home, which in an English-dominant country like Australia usually means stop speaking the language or languages other than English so that we can put all of our attention and effort and concentration into learning this one language that really matters, English, implying that the other languages don't matter. So there's no evidence that that leads to any benefit in terms of treatment in children who 
actually do have a language impairment and there's actually evidence showing that if you do speak multiple languages that can give you some sort of advantage when it comes to language learning and thinking about um, just the abstract relationships between different elements of language that can benefit language processing in multiple languages. So that would be my advice based on my expertise. Hi there, I'm just wondering, um, can teaching kids music help ease anxiety levels and what other things might you do with music for kids? I think that using music is probably one of the best things you can do to ease anxiety levels in, in small children and babies. So lullabies obviously are the type of songs that you use to put a baby to sleep and they can have a really good effect on just lowering arousal levels. So arousal has to do with the um, level of physical alertness and tension in the body and being able to lower those levels of physical tension can help them to feel more calm. So lullabies are really great for that but it's also something to do with the fact that it's the parent's voice that is doing this. So it's much more effective, for example, for the parent to sing to the baby than it is to play recorded music. There, there are some theories, actually, that this may be one of the whole evolutionary um, reasons that music exists, is that it's developed as part of the way parents and children bond. So when you think about it, when we speak to babies... We often use what's called parentese, you know, the kind of thing where you go, oh, you're such a cute baby, that kind of voice, which is actually fairly similar to the type of voice that we use when we're singing. And so just hearing the parent's voice doing that is very much a way that the baby gets signals from the parent that the parent is there looking after them and that everything is okay. So it's a way of reassuring them as well. That's all we've got time for. Thank you again for sending in your questions and getting so involved this season. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the podcast. I have certainly enjoyed being on this journey with you. If you've enjoyed learning about how babies' brains work as much as I have, then please share this series with a fellow parent or friend. Recommendations are actually the most common way that people discover new podcasts. I know I've been flooding all the parents I know. And if this is your first venture into podcasting, then head to babyology.com and click on the podcast page. There's information there on how to subscribe and listen to podcasts on your phone, iPad, or even in your car. And there are plenty of other great parenting podcasts that we think you'd love. Baby Lab will be on hiatus for a little while, but we'll be coming back with more episodes in Season 2. Stay subscribed to get all the updates. Baby Lab is produced by Babyology and Western Sydney University. The series was recorded and edited by Caitlin Gibson, Tim Ritchie was head of podcast, and it was hosted by me, Jamila Rizvi. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you again soon.